a young perspective on hot-button issues around the world. This is The Hub. Hello and welcome to today's program. I'm Wang Guan in Beijing. Chinese President Xi Jinping and Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko met in Samarkand, Uzbekistan. And that was a very important meeting because during that meeting, the bilateral relationship was elevated to an all-weather comprehensive strategic partnership. Now with President Lukashenko's state visit to China, where is the relationship headed next? Besides bilateral trade and investment cooperation, what can Belarus contribute to regional stability as a new member of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization? To talk about all this, Yoheni Preherman joins us now from Minsk, Belarus. He's director of the Minsk Dialogue Council on International Relations. Also in Beijing, we have Zhang Xin, associate professor at the School of Politics and International Relations of East China Normal University. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Let me go to you, if I may, Yoheni, in Minsk, Belarus. Uh, this year, of course, marks the 31st anniversary of bilateral relations. Uh, we just saw President Lukashenko visiting China. He's actually wrapping up his visit on March the 2nd. Um, what do Belarusians make of this visit, and what outcomes do you expect to come out of this summit? Well, I, I think the visit is seen with great interest and uh, very positively across Belarusian society, as probably any country in the world, Belarus is primarily interested in two realms, that is security and economy, and those two realms have traditionally driven our relations. And especially now that uh, Eastern Europe is amid a crisis, both in terms of security and economy, I think this visit is seen with particular interest. I think the two countries have already covered quite a lot of ground in the three decades of their relations in terms of developing economic relations. And I see that the Belarusian president uh, noted at every meeting that uh, the trade volume between the two countries, all problems in the global economy and in Eastern Europe notwithstanding, has now reached a level which only a decade ago was difficult to imagine. And that, of course, reflects the progress in the relationship. And in terms of security, given that Belarus is next door to the war in Ukraine, and given the peace suggestions that Beijing has recently uh, put forward, which are now widely discussed internationally, I think this is an additional factor which adds a lot to this visit, because those suggestions are very much to the liking, but also very much the ideas that Belarus has been promoting itself in the world. And these ideas are seen as a potential well, let's say potential answers to those dilemmas that drive the conflicts and the region. Yeah, it has been a strong relationship and uh, you can tell from terminology, terminology matters in diplomacy. Professor Zhang, uh, bilateral relations are elevated to quote-unquote all-weather comprehensive strategic partnership. And we know that this is a rare designation in China's foreign policy. Only very, very few countries such as Pakistan was described by Beijing as all-weather comprehensive strategic collaborative partners. Um, what does this designation mean to you, and what do you make of the current China-Belarusian relations? Uh, the, term, the, the terminology definitely matters. As you just correctly point out, uh, Belarus uh, uh, enjoyed this uh, all-weather comprehensive uh, strategic partnership with uh, China, uh, a level of diplomatic relation that's uh, not uh, uh, used very often uh, in China's diplomatic uh, terminology. I think overall, the all-weather components indicate that uh, officially between the two states, um, both sides regarded their bilateral relations at uh, a unique, uh, significant level. Uh, that uniqueness means 
in all kinds of, uh, uh, regardless of the external uh, environments, regardless of what happened uh, between these two countries domestically, uh, two countries look for comprehensive uh, collaboration in a multiple different policy sphere. I think that's the basic message of the terminology. And I agree with uh, our Belarusian colleagues' overall description of bilateral official relations between two countries uh, since early 1990s have developed rather smoothly. Uh, it starts with a very clear mutual respect for each country's basic concerns. And that's the starting point for uh, bilateral relations uh, on an official level. Then it gradually and smoothly expands to a set of uh, especially economic sectors and also social development. And now we see um, in a very difficult external context, the two sides, the two uh, governments decided to uh, further elevate the bilateral relation to a new level. I think that's the overall pattern. Yeah, but Professor John, the Western media's coverage of uh, President Lukashenko's visit to China is very narrowly mm -hmm. focused. They focus on geopolitics. Uh, their headline describes President Lukashenko as, quote unquote, Russia's ally. Uh, bringing the mm -hmm. Russia-Ukraine crisis uh, into the visit. Uh, what do you see as the West's main concerns or even fears uh, about the visit? Actually, I want to ask this question to both of you. Uh, first of all, Professor Zhang. Mm -hmm. uh, first of all, I think there's nothing wrong, nothing surprising to um, see a geopolitical element in any uh, state visits. Uh, that's what uh, states do. So it's uh, very natural and logical to have a at least one uh, level, one element of uh, geopolitical uh, con consideration in official visits. The second, I think it's uh, uh, way too narrow to define uh, President Lukashenko's visit to China or the Belarusian-Chinese relation as completely dictated uh, by the ongoing uh, Russo-Ukrainian uh, conflicts. Right? That's a significant, uh, significantly important uh, geopolitical conflict which uh, I think uh, Russia does have a, um, a special relation to it. But uh, between uh, Belarus and China, there are tons of important issues that belong to a genuinely bilateral uh, agenda. Right? So I think it's way too narrow to define this visit or Belarusian-Chinese relation as being completely dictated or dominated mm. by the Russian-Ukrainian crisis. Yuhaini in Minsk, Belarus, what do you think? Well, I, I do agree. We know that the media usually attempt to uh, connect current developments, including such high-level visits, to the current media agenda. But of course, a visit of this scale has been in the making and in the uh, planning for quite a long time, which already uh, tells us that it does reflect uh, many more developments in the bilateral relationship between Belarus and China than just joint thinking about the war in Ukraine. So I think it's only natural that this has to be taken into account when we analyze the nuances of this visit. And then on February the 24th, China released its white paper, a position document on the Ukraine crisis urging for a political settlement. Uh, how does the Chinese position paper come across to the Belarusians? Very positively. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, the ideas in this 12-point plan are generally very much in line with what Belarus thinks and more importantly with what Belarus itself has been promoting on the international arena for a couple of years. As you can imagine, being next door to Ukraine, we've been pretty much involved in the conflict development since 2014 when basically this very conflict started. And back then, Belarus was the internationally recognized neutral venue for talks 
and those talks did take place in Belarus. And the Belarusian leadership would, uh, back then, put forward quite a few ideas very much similar to the China's vision. In this respect, I should say that even though the two countries are very different in terms of their international uh, let's say uh, roles, but also you know very distance that uh, is between Belarus and China on these particular matters, not just on Ukraine, but broadly speaking on the future of international security, they can be very natural partners, and Belarus can become a proactive. Uh, ally in promoting these ideas when it comes to discussions about what the international system, international security is going to look like in years and decade, decades to come. You're talking about international security. The Shanghai Cooperation Organization, or SCO, is uh, playing an increasingly important role. Actually, it is accepting new members. Iran is becoming a new member at SCO. And also in the Samarhan summit uh, last year, uh, Belarus was uh, being accepted. Of course, there's a, a procedure internally and uh, within the SEO to clear, to officially accept Belarus. Uh, Professor Zhang, when do you expect Belarus to become a full member of the SEO and what will be the benefits for the SEO and for the Belarus? Uh, for one, I think Belarus, uh, Belarusian government uh, takes the uh, me former mem uh, membership of SEO very seriously. Uh, we have seen consistent uh, strong interest in uh, joining SCO from uh, the Belarus government's uh, perspective over the years. And secondly, I think the earliest time we can expect to see the beginning of a formal adoption of uh, Belarus, Belarus as a formal member of SCO as early as uh, this year's uh, SCO summit, which will be held by uh, India. But a specific date for that is not uh, finalized yet. Uh, but as you correctly mentioned, uh, there are some uh, procedures we need to finish. And also, uh, as I, someone uh, who are involved in the expert level discussion of SEO, I recall correctly that uh, uh, as uh, SEO uh, decided to expand its uh, membership, uh, uh, include uh, uh, India and Pakistan as a formal member a couple of years ago, uh, when the topic comes up further expansion of uh, SEO membership, Belarus was already on the list of uh, countries that uh, has the best conditions to be part of the SEO community. Uh, I think the adoption of uh, uh, Belarus as a possible full member really, uh, to some extent, uh, promote the expansion of SEO's own organizational agenda and the mandate to a large extent, to extend from the core of Central Asia uh, with uh, border security as the original major mandate, now gradually expand to a, a larger geographic, geographic coverage as well as a further extended organizational yeah. uh, mandate. Yohani, yeah, what do you think? Uh, what role can Belarus play uh, to in an SEO? I, I think two specific features that Belarus will bring to the organization are, first of all, its geographic location is going to be obviously the first European country to join the SEO. And secondly, Belarus has been active with the organization for at least 10 or even more years in different roles that the organization allowed. And it's been promoting what I call a bridging agenda within the organization, trying to bridge geopolitically, but also geoeconomically, the Central Asian original focus of the organization and its broader potential to play in international affairs. And I think it's going to continue to play along those two main directions and in a way that will indeed uh, help to broaden and even change positively, uh, I'll say, the mission of the organization. That's at least how it is seen from it. 
Great, Johanny and Professor John, we have more questions than we have time for them, but thank you for joining us at this hour and um, come back again. Thank you. Okay. Meanwhile, tensions between the United States and China already high are climbing even higher as the so-called Select Committee on the Capitol Hill began its first hearing on how to further contain China. First, here's my take. You know, one thing I learned from covering Washington politics for eight years is that politicians in D.C. love acronyms, love them. From POTUS to FLOTUS, from CARE Act to FAIR Act. So given the recent Chinese bloom incident over the United States and given the collective rage against China displayed by both the Democrats and the Republicans, who agree on very little else these days, maybe it's time for a new acronym. Maybe the Congress should consider a Bonding Through Beijing Bashing Act, or BBB. <laughs> Sorry, I know it's not a good idea to name a program that reminds people of another ill-fated one. I mean, Build Back Better was this beautiful promise on U.S. infrastructure and had been moving through the Senate for, what, three years? Anyhow, the Bloom incident says a lot about the state of affairs in Washington. Getting tougher on China may not be the rational response to maximize American interests, but a necessary one politically. In fact, the United States was among the first countries to send blooms elsewhere. In January 1953, a total of 448 DWS 119L reconnaissance blooms were launched towards the former USSR, out of which about 380 blooms reached Soviet airspace. In July 1958, WS-461L blooms used the higher summer jet stream to fly into the former USSR, escorted by cover blooms or ones without cameras or other means of intelligence gathering. Now fast forward to 2022, according to China, the US flew spy blooms into Chinese airspace more than 10 times that year. We're not even talking about NSA surveillance programs. Remember PRISM? that collects stored internet communications based on demands made to internet companies such as Google? Or Stateroom, that is a highly secretive program intercepting international radio telecommunications and internet traffic in a hundred U.S. embassies and consulates worldwide. Robert Zolik, former president of the World Bank and former U.S. Deputy Secretary of State, said that Washington's reaction is a lost opportunity to improve ties. He said, Afraid of looking soft on China, the Biden administration is failing to turn China's blunder into a diplomatic opportunity. Instead of postponing Secretary of State Antony Blinken's trip to China in protest, President Biden should have directed Blinken to present Chinese President Xi Jinping with recommendations to increase transparency and lessen dangers. It is a concern shared by others in that Biden's China policy is compromised over and over again by the need to please the Republicans and that might be the case in the foreseeable future. Let's face it, Biden needs some political space to implement his China policy, which he originally intended, in which he says he does not want conflict or a new Cold War. And those China hawks could perhaps see China less through the xenophobic, chauvinistic, and belligerent lenses. And China's policies and intentions, of course, could be better communicated and understood too. Now for more discussions, joining me from Henderson, Nevada, the United States, is William Lee, Chief Economist at the Milken Institute. And in Beijing, China, we have Andy Mock, Senior Research Fellow at the Center for China and Globalization. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Um, there is this select committee on, you know, uh, China Containment Act, basically. Of course, it has a fancier name, uh, you know, regarding China, managing China-U.S. strategic competition. Uh, first of all, I want to play you some thoughts uh, from this committee. 
It's not a polite tennis match. This is an existential struggle over what life will look like in the 21st century. And the most fundamental freedoms are at stake. We must deter the aggression by the CCP. We do not want a war with the PRC. Not a cold war, not a hot war. We don't want a clash of civilizations. But we seek a durable peace. And that is why we have to deter aggression. The economic policies of the Chinese Communist Party represent a clear and present danger to the American worker, our innovation base, and our national security. So Andy Mock, uh, let me go to you first. This select committee on the strategic competition between the United States and the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, what do you make of that? Well, Wang Guan, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, this struck me as both delusional and alarming and reminded me of the Glenn Close character in the movie Fatal Attraction, where she ends up not only hurting people around her, uh, but herself. Because the delusion is, if you look at uh, especially Matt Pottinger's opening statement, who, by the way, Matt is, I think, kind of the scheming puppet master uh, pulling the strings uh, behind a lot of this, is that there are these myths that uh, the Chinese, uh, China is not a communist country. It does not want to change the world. And through these secret speeches that they've discovered that China is all of these things. And, you know, this is common knowledge for anyone that covers China, that China believes that its system works, works for itself, may have valuable lessons for others in the world. Um, and there's no secret here. And, you know, I think this delusion is really hurting the U.S. Uh, and, of course, hurting countries around the world as well. And, you know, it's, it's really sad that uh, this is happening. Uh, William Lee in Nevada, what do you make of this committee? What does it do? Any bills that has passed? Uh, what is really the purpose of setting up yet another China-related committee uh, on the Capitol Hill? Well, Wang Guang, again, thank you for having me here. And I must say, Andy probably woke up on the wrong side of bed. I, I hear a lot of uh, virulence and, and um, venom coming out of him in his interpretation of what was said. And from what I hear, uh, the committee was set up because I think the U.S. government is recognizing that China has become a real stiff competitor to U.S. industry. And there's a lot of concern that uh, there may be job losses and, and loss of market share to Chinese competitors. And I think the concern of the committee is that they're trying to protect U.S. workers and they're trying to find out where is it that China has been so successful and why is it that, that U.S. Uh, companies may or may not be able to compete as effectively. So I think the, 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 a lot of the rhetoric is in, in preparation for the election campaign because I think the Republicans are going to come out very strong that they're there to protect the American worker. And I think the, the, the China is, is really being used as a vehicle to try to focus on what is needed to restructure the American economy and help American workers. Uh, Andy, do you want to respond? Well, I, I don't disagree that certainly there is an element uh, of these hearings to focus on increasing American competitiveness. And I certainly hope that that does happen. That's good for the United States. That's good for the world. But we have to look at the written record. So. Uh, Matt Pottinger is uh, quoted as saying the source of his antagonism towards China is China's efforts to subvert American power and influence, first in China, next in the region, and then the world. And I think what this implies, of course, is that 
uh, he and perhaps others like him believe that the U.S. should rightfully exert power and influence in China. And this, again, I think goes back to my point that this is delusional uh, and self-defeating. Well, I think uh, what uh, Matt Pottinger didn't say is uh, probably his uh, anger towards China derived from his days as a Wall Street Journal reporter decades ago and his uh, many episodes with um, you know, well relevant people here in China. Um, he's not going to say that, right? Um, William Lee, uh, what do you make of the fact that this committee is you know, saying that he wants to talk to the Wall Street firms to better understand the complexities of so-called de-risking or selective economic decoupling. Does this suggest that the trade war between China and the United States or trade conflicts, whatever you call it, might escalate in the future? Well, I think the, it reflects the fact that we don't have a viable framework for trade between the two largest countries in the world. And the failure of the trade negotiations during the Trump administration and the apparent failure of the Biden administration to get much further progress shows that we need to put something in place. And I think the, the concerns that are being expressed about national security uh, and the desire to talk to Wall Street firms is to find out why is it that investments are not settling in on the United States to try to build up the semiconductor industry here, to build up more of the supply chain that COVID has taught us we cannot stretch out too far uh, and, and to to diversify the U.S. economy so that we can produce more of the vital goods and services here in the United States. And I think the, the Wall Street firm's uh, reply has been that um, a lot of the U.S. domestic regulations have made it very unfriendly to produce stuff here. And, and China has been a very friendly audience in welcoming foreign capital. And President Xi Jinping's latest speech has said, you know, we do welcome foreign capital. And, and I think that is the tension that is uh, facing the U.S. Uh, legislatures who have put in place a lot of regulations to incentivize firms to leave the United States. And at the same time, they want them to come back to produce the vital goods and services. So I think the, the tension is being heard here. And, and I don't think there's any kind of uh, ulterior motive to try to put down China. In fact, it's a recognition that China has become a formidable competitor and is a fertile ground for a lot of foreign investments. So I think uh, the, going forward, the problem that the U.S. legislatures have got to face, especially in this election year, is to elect officials who will recognize how global competition can be enhanced and to better both parties uh, for, for customers and, and producers around the world. Well, talking about chips, uh, let me stay with you, William. The Department of Commerce has just announced that the U.S. chip makers operating in China cannot access a, a federal funding uh, worth $39 billion. Uh, it, you know, they have to halt their operations in China for at least a decade if they want to access this um, massive uh, amount of fund. Uh, what do you make of that? That's a great point. In fact, that's a great example. I would, in fact, I, I should have used that as my example for why it is that the legislatures have to reassess themselves. They've learned in their discussions from the Wall Street firms and the private equity firms that investment is fungible. A dollar is a dollar. And, and the CHIPS Act was to provide a pool of money to incentivize large companies to produce chips here in the United States, to employ American workers, and to employ American engineers. And what they're trying to prevent, and the reason why they put these restrictive incentives in place, is to prevent firms from cutting back on investments and using the federal dollars and using the investment dollars that they would have put in place someplace else, like to invest in, 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 in other plants of, in other parts of the world. Uh, so I think the fear of crowding out 
crowding out investments that would have taken place is something that these restrictions are designed to say, if you're going to make investments in the United States, you have to keep them in the United States, and they can't be substitutes for the kind of investments that you would have made here. And doing that is a very tricky thing, and, and the legislation that is put in place and their, its implementation through the administrators and, and the regulatory agencies is going to have to be very careful in designing the incentives so that we increase the pie that is being produced here and not just slice off more of it to be paid for by the U.S. government and less of it to be paid for by the shareholders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and China will have a similar saying, uh, make the pie bigger instead of uh, dividing it uh, only. Um, Andy, uh, more on the technology front. On Monday, the White House gave a 30-day deadline to government agencies to remove the popular um, app, TikTok, from federal devices and systems. Um, in response, the Chinese foreign ministry said, and I quote, how unsure of itself can the United States, the world's top superpower, be to fear a young person's favorite app to such a degree? I mean, uh, is the U.S. overreacting to TikTok uh, fear? I think it certainly is. And again, I think we come back to this idea of being delusional. And just very briefly, I want to add about the, the private equity part. We have to recognize that American private equity firms, uh, hedge funds, VC firms, invest in China not because they like China, but because the returns are attractive. And not just the gross returns, the risk-adjusted returns. And this benefits the limited partners or the pension funds, the insurance funds that give them the money. And this ultimately benefits the American people that rely on these investment returns uh, for their retirements, for other important needs. So I think, again, this is very, very counterproductive. And the move with TikTok is the same. I think it's symbolic. Most of the users of TikTok are young teenagers, uh, probably not government workers. Uh, but still, it does signal a certain paranoia uh, and a certain uh, lack of confidence, uh, Wang Guan. So I, I would agree with you there. That's all the time we have, I'm afraid. Andy and William, thank you both so very much. That would do it for this edition of The Hub on CGTN. Thank you for tuning in. Our news coverage continues. Bye and take care. Dunhuang. Situated along the ancient Silk Road, where fine arts and divine beliefs merged with the natural world. It's where the East and West interacted, and where the world's largest Buddhist art gallery still fascinates and amazes people today. A place where stories of life and death, love and hatred, passion and desire, faith and sacrifice have been generated and told for 2,000 years. Buckle up for our new podcast, Why We Loved Dunhuang, the one and only podcast that can take you to the fantasy world of Dunhuang and beyond through our audio tour. Listen and subscribe for free on the major podcast platforms. Why We Loved Dunhuang? You will have your answers.